You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Evan Martin. Thank you, Joe Kirkendall. Appreciate that. I've never heard that sort of introduction before. All right. Uh, how are you guys doing? I'm tired, personally. Um, but thank you for showing up. Uh, we, If you guys were here last week, uh, we laid the groundwork for missions, and you guys kind of probably wondered where I was going when I was talking about King Saul, uh, and he was out looking for donkeys. Um, but my emphasis for that was, listen, you gotta get, you got to get Jesus first. got to understand that, and you got to get uh, that relationship right before we talk about the specifics of missions. So uh, I do want to review just a little bit uh, today because I had a whole lot of you guys respond to me uh, from that message last week, um, maybe hitting exactly where you guys were at. Maybe some of you guys feel like you're out chasing donkeys. And so um, let me just tell you where we're going to go today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review some of those and pull on some points that I just thought a lot about this past week. Um, but uh, then we're going to learn about some specific missionaries. We're going to fly through just a handful of missionaries and talk about uh, their lives, what they, what they did and, and why they were important. Um, one of those missionaries was expelled from college. Uh, one of those missionaries started the first ever Mill Sunday School, so uh, you'll have to you'll have to stay tuned to to hear about that. It was actually it was actually a girl who started the first ever Mill Sunday School. You didn't know that, but um, and then and then we're going to go into understanding missions uh, in from the from the study of Calvinism versus Arminianism, and we're going to have. Uh, kind of a, a very short debate. We're going to divide you guys up. You guys are going to discuss amongst your tables uh, where you, what you believe, and we're going to uh, teach you about the five points of Calvinism and then what uh, the Arminianists believe, and then we're going to have two representatives come up here and do a very quick debate. Uh, so you guys are going to elect somebody to represent your side. Um, and then uh, we're going to finish by talking about opportunities now and, and who exactly can be a missionary and how you go about doing that. So um, before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Jesus, we praise you and lift you high, God. Jesus, we've come today even with one less hour of sleep, God, because we, we love to learn about you. We love to study your word. We, God, we want, we want to mirror our lives up with your life as compared in what the scriptures say about you. And God, we, we bow once again to your authority in our lives. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, quick turn back to last week's study, which was uh, 1 Samuel. And we're going to do uh, chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. It might be up on the screen there if I can get to it. Okay, remember, uh, Saul was the first king of Israel, but he, he was out looking for lost donkeys when, when he was anointed king. Um, this is going to be 1 Samuel 9, 5 through 8. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God... He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? 
The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? Verse 8, the servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver or 54 cents nowadays. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. I thought a lot about that servant uh, this week and I wondered where, where did he end up? You know, Saul ends up becoming king. Um, he eventually moves into a palace. I wonder if every once in a while they would cross paths. And, and I would think that that servant ended up in the palace. And I wonder if they would cross paths in the hallway and they'd kind of make eye contact and remember that day when that servant gave everything he, could, everything he had and, and it eventually led to Saul becoming king. And the, the point I want to make is this. Giving what you can affects history. The, he didn't have a whole lot and he was a servant, so he was never ever going to have a whole lot. But he took what was in his pocket and he said, he said, listen, I'll give this. Was he ever going to get repaid monetarily? Maybe not. People like that don't, don't always remember exactly what you give in that moment. You guys have had those, you guys have had those interactions with people in high level, CEO people that you, you might do something or serve them or give them something and they don't always necessarily remember that. So I don't think the servant was there going, oh yeah, uh, could you, could you give me a receipt for that so that once we get back to your dad, I can turn that in as a business expense. That's probably not going to happen, right? But he gave what he had and it affected history. And so I think even when we have little, I think if we can give that for the cause of pushing somebody closer towards Christ. He, he, he encouraged Paul, he encouraged Saul, excuse me, to go see a man of God, to go seek God in essence. And he, and he gave all he, all he had at that moment. And giving what you can affects history. And then 1 Samuel 10, 26 says this, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Remember this, Samuel had anointed Saul to be king, and then he rallied a, a kind of inauguration ceremony, kind of anticlimactic, and tells the regulations of the kingship, and then sends people home, and Saul goes back home to where he was, because there wasn't, there wasn't a palace at that point. Uh, there wasn't necessarily even a capital of this of this nation. And so Saul goes home, but it, it says that he was accompanied by valiant men. And then later on uh, in chapter 11, verse 6, it says, When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. And so if you guys remember last week, the story is the, the, story is the, the, uh, the town of Jabesh is... is being attacked, and the men of Jabesh, everybody in Jabesh is going to get their right eyes gouged out by this army. And so Saul, they, they, they send messengers telling them what's going to happen, and the people just cry. And Saul comes back from plowing his fields behind these oxen, and he's like, why are people crying? And they tell him, and then something inside of him rises up, and he burns with anger, and then he acts on it, and he calls people to action to rally with him. And that was the defining moment. And if you read further on, they actually have another ceremony confirming that, in fact, Saul would be the king of Israel. And so my point is this, after thinking about it all week, is that, is that by your courage, you can affect change in other people. Specifically, your strength and courage inspires kings to act as kings. Some of your friends are destined to be kings. 
Okay, not not king of the United States of America, not king of any country, but kings. Okay, I think you guys understand what I'm saying. But your courage and your strength will inspire them to be who they are supposed to be. Because because I think that Saul might have deferred to, I don't know exactly what to do. I'm supposed to be king. What do we do? Should we send him a letter? I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Um, you know, but now I'm king, so maybe 30 years from now we'll have an army, and this won't ever happen, but it'll, it's going to happen. What, what's what's going to happen? But he had valiant men that went home with him, and so now he's surrounded by these guys that could kick tail, right? And so he thinks, he thinks, man, now I could do something about it. And so think about your circle of friends, and think about if you're the valiant-hearted person that's surrounding them. Forget about yourself for a second. Forget about your desire to, to rise up or to be king. Think about your best friends, and, and you know probably better than they do what they're destined to be. Because those valiant men probably understood, look, Saul, you're king. And Saul himself is probably doubting, man, why am I king? Why did I get oil dumped on my head? I, am I, was Samuel really right? Was this the right thing to do? But these valiant men are like, Saul, you're king. And so then came a point in history where Saul could actually act. And then he was able to act, I think, because of the courage and the strength of those valiant men being surrounded by him. That's why community is so important. Because there's something that's been placed inside of each of us that we don't have the strength to open. Does that make sense? That... We can't become it on ourselves because we have to have somebody speak that into our life. And I think when you hang around strong guys, you become stronger. I think when you hang around weak guys and intimidated guys, you become weak and intimidated. Right? And so some of you, some of you girls, there's, there's girls in your circle that are destined to be queens. Destined to lead women out of, out of certain issues and struggles and past hurts and and they're not going to do it unless you pull them aside and speak into their life and say, you know what I see inside of you? I see the heart of a queen. I see the heart of somebody who's going to stand up and change lives. And it might not be from the stage. It might not be with a microphone. It might be in a small group. It might be a, a, in a one-on-one setting where, where, where she's able to, at Starbucks, open up somebody's heart like nobody's ever seen before. And that girl walks away from Starbucks changed because this queen acted. But that queen won't act until you speak into her life. Does that make sense? So I want you guys to be valiant men. I want you guys to be valiant women. And I want you to go find those kings. I want you to find those queens and then tell them that that's what they're supposed to be. Because there's going to be a day when a bunch of people are standing around crying. And that person needs to act. Not cry, act. And rally people around, cut up their oxen and send those bloody parts all across the nation and say, you're either with me or you're you're not. You're against me. Okay? So that's what I've been thinking about uh, a lot this week. And I kind of wanted to uh, review that. I actually uh, had an email that was sent to me that I want to share with you guys. Because I I I think it makes that point that I was just trying to share. So bear with me as I, as I read this. Hi, Evan. I'm writing to thank you for giving that first talk on missions this morning in Sunday school. I also want to tell you a part of my story as it relates to what you spoke about since I felt you were talking straight to me the entire time. When you spoke about Saul and the way he was just living his daily life and almost running out of hope that anything big could come of him, I knew there was a reason I was there because that's me to the core. 
Then you talked about how some people have already spent much time looking for donkeys, being faithful with the small things, and that's me again. I've tried for years to live all in where I am, and I've had some successes, but I'm running dry now. I'm not sure I can make it to the next big stage of my life while still retaining any real shreds of hope and believing that I really have a big future ahead of me. There was a time in high school when I knew without a doubt and believed with all my heart that God had big plans in store for me and that I could take hold of them through perseverance in faith. Currently, I'm in a place where my individuality as a Christian man has been stepped on and diluted. I'm treated as, quote, one of the masses. We're being different or set apart as difficult and discouraging. Where so many words spoken over me have tried to tell me that the best I can do is survive. I've gone so long without seeing any fruits from my labor, I've lost hope. There was a time when I could stand up and shout the name of Jesus at the top of my lungs and believe with all my heart, but now I'm mostly reduced to whispering to God and just hoping that it'll all work out. I believe in God as much as I ever have, and I know his promises will come true, but I've lived most of my recent years in so much pain from disillusionment and brokenheartedness with so much deferred hope. Hearing your conclusions from Saul's story, I prayed so much this morning, just giving God permission to begin his change in me this very day. Deep down inside me, already the faith of a child is strengthening again. And at the same time, the kingly heart in me is beginning to regrow. In so many ways, this is the story of my life too. A young man called up from the mundane and dry into the powerful and deep things of God. Suddenly, and in a way I don't understand, but unmistakably, and when I least expect it. Writing about Strider, or Aragorn, as he is introduced to the hobbits, Tolkien promises... Token uses a poem to tell his story. Strider has been living as an untrusted wanderer in the land where he is the rightful king. These words have haunted me in recent weeks in conjunction with the sermons at church. I've lied awake at nights, unable to deny this about my life. And then he quotes from Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all that who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. I don't look the part, but I know I have the heart of a king beating in my chest. And the royal lineage of Christ in my blood. I've been wandering unsure of where I'm going, but the Lord knows and he has directed my paths. My faith has been beaten but not destroyed, and I know my roots in Christ are true and good. The fire in me that used to burn so strong will burn bright again. I'll get to the end of this dark time and again see the light. And maybe not literally, but spiritually, someday I will be a king, a leader and steward of whatever God entrusts to me, a champion for his kingdom's cause in my time. I never thought how poignantly this story of Saul and this fictional representation of kingly destiny were paralleled. I hope this has made some sense as I've written it. My true label is that of a beloved son of God, a loyal servant to the king of kings, a a holy ambassador for the Lord of lords, a redeemed overcomer, a noble warrior, an agent of the truth, and more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I'm going to go forward from today undeterred by what the world throws at me, doing the best I can to do whatever my hands find to do, knowing that God is with me. I don't know what the future will hold, but I know what I've heard and felt from God today was real and will have big implications for the upcoming seasons of my walk with God. I know it's way past time for me to start believing God for the big things again in Christ.
It's a great email. It's a great, it's a great stance to take. And I think, I think I take issue. I was in an argument last night about the church <laughs> and talking to some people that were disillusioned by the church. They don't go to church. And I asked them that question. I said, I said, why don't you go to church? And for the next probably hour and a half, we had a discussion about the church. And, and listen, I could stand up here and bet, between Joe and I, probably, we, we could tell you more things that we don't like about the church than you could tell us about. And I could tell somebody who doesn't go to church so many more things that I don't like about the church than they know. But for some reason, I've given my life to the church because I believe it has the power to affect change. But I think sometimes we, we go to church, we listen to somebody stand up and speak, and then we go home. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like the meal that you ate last week. Do you remember what you ate? No? Right. And if this wasn't a series necessarily, and if I didn't have the opportunity to review the story of Saul, I wonder how many of us would be able to recall that a week or two, two weeks later. So I have to think about what I do and say, does it really matter? But I know that I have to be faithful with what God's called me to do and faithful with what God's called me to say. And then it's up to us to have it transform our lives. Because I'm not saying something to you guys to say, hey, transform your lives. Use this. Uh, be like what Joe said. Come get fed. This feeds me. And it affects me just like that. And so that, I think that email spoke to me so much because I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want to sit and ponder. And I want to, I want to take this, tear it apart and say, how am I going to change? How am I going to be different? How can I then become a king? All right. Let's talk about missionaries. Um, I'm going to fly through. I'm going to fly through a couple of uh, stories about about missionaries, so that we can get to um, potentially the, the discussion and then um, and then the debate. So uh, this is in no way an in-depth study, but I'm I'm going to share um, about the lives of five missionaries and then kind of draw some points about about uh, what they were like and and, and uh, what we need to learn from that. So. Uh, there was a guy named David Brainerd. He lived from 1718 to 1747, uh, kind of a short life. He died of tuberculosis, um, and, he, and he lived in the United States of America on the East Coast, uh, and, and he actually lived his life in the service of trying to reach Native Americans. Um, he, he didn't have a whole lot of fruit, but he became one of the most well-known missionaries because of the journal entries that he kept, and... And he was peers with Jonathan Edwards. Um, but the funny thing about David Brainerd is that he was expelled from Yale. He went to Yale, and his, and his junior year in Yale, he got expelled. Uh, so what do you get expelled from Yale for nowadays? Mm, che- cheating, maybe? Um, just blatant uh, kind of disagreeing with authority or, or breaking rules that would be... He got expelled for saying privately about one of his tutors, he said this, he has about as much grace as this chair. 
they expelled him for that. <laughs> so think back in the days. So that's in the 1700s. He, he got expelled. He apologized profusely. He tried to make amends. He, he tried everything he could to stay in school. And they were like, no, you just told somebody that they, don't, they have as much grace as a chair. You're out of here, man. So um, he did that. Well, Yale, I think, kind of wised up uh, later on because actually now there's a building named after uh, David Brainerd. It's Brainerd Hall. You can go there. You can visit Yale and see that there's a building. It's it's the only building named after a student who was expelled. So, um, <laughs> rightful, rightfully so. Well, uh, David Brainerd actually inspired William Carey. William Carey uh, is known as the father of modern missions. He lived 1761 to 1834. And um, get this about about William Carey. He taught himself Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, French, and then he was a missionary in India, and so he knew, he knew two different Indian languages and translated the Bible into those two languages and multiple dialects in India. Not dumb. Um, he, he read Jonathan Edwards' account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd and the journals of the explorer James Cook and became deeply concerned with propagating the Christian gospel throughout the world. So, so William Carey, the father of modern missions, was inspired by what? A kid who got kicked out of Yale, who became a missionary. But then he also, he also studied the life and the books of, of an explorer named James Cook. So definitely a well-rounded individual, right? And had, and had a lasting effect. So, um, but through that, he became, he became concerned about propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, throughout the world. Hudson Taylor, you guys have heard these, this name before. 1832 to 1905. He, his quote is, If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. He was the founder of China Inland Missions. Uh, he served in China for more than 50 years. So be, some missionaries do this nowadays, but he was kind of the first one to do it uh, because, because back then missionaries came in uh, kind of, kind of uh, as elite and they're thinking, okay, we're coming to give these, uh, these people of lower caste something. So we're coming to give. Hudson Taylor went to China and he immediately started wearing Chinese traditional clothing. And so he said, he basically said, hey, I'm one of you. I just have something different inside of me. Um, he, he was responsible, Hudson Taylor was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries into China. He started 125 schools, and his results were more than 18,000 converts. So some, some, some of these missionaries, uh, like David Brainerd, though inspiring didn't have a whole lot of immediate fruit but i would i would argue that david brainerd had uh some ties into the fruit of hudson taylor uh okay uh you guys want to know the first ever the person who started first ever mill sunday school joe didn't even know this okay first ever mill sunday school it was a girl you ready you ready first ever mill sunday school only girls were allowed all right? Okay? All right. Amy Carmichael, you guys have heard of her. Uh, she's a, one of the most famous uh, female missionaries. Uh, she started a Sunday school for poor girls known as Shollies who worked in the mills. Get it? Get it? 
Mill Sunday School for Girls. First ever. So, <laughs> okay, so these girls, these girls, they were called shollies because they worked in the mills and uh, they were so poor that they couldn't afford a hat. And so they wore, they wore shawls over them. And so she was, she was young. I'm, I'm talking like uh, 18 to 20 years old when she was like, hey, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start this Bible study for women, for these poor women. And so she, she basically used a hall in the church. Um, and it was, it was separate from the, from the main service. And so she used a hall. Well, it, it kept growing and kept growing and kept growing. And, uh, it eventually got to 100, 200, 300 of these girls. And then, um, she was just having a hard time getting them all into this place. And she opened up one of these magazines and found out that, that you could, you could, um, build the steel building kind of, you can do that nowadays easy, but back then it was kind of, uh, a neat idea. And so she actually um, got somebody to donate money and built uh, their own building. And then 500, her, her Sunday school was 500 girls. Um, she was inspired by Hudson Taylor when she was 20 and eventually became a missionary to Southern India for 55 years. And in 55 years, never came back home. So she never had a furlough, gave her life, gave her life to India uh, and then when she was getting ready to die, she said, I don't want a gravestone. I don't want, I don't want something like that, that, that is so symbolic of death to, to mark my, to mark where my body is. And so they, they put instead a bird bath over her grave with one word. And that was the Indian word for mother. So she was kind of the first ever mother Teresa, uh, in a sense. So she, one of her quotes is one can give without loving but one cannot love without giving. One can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. And then she was written to by maybe one of the girls that, that was in her Sunday school class, and now she's in India, and this girl is, is uh, writing and saying, and saying, well, I'm thinking about going on missions, um, and what's it like to be a missionary, and what is missionary life like? She, she responded with one sentence. She said, Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Amy Carmichael inspired a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, you guys have probably heard of. Um, there's, actually, there's actually photos of him because he lived 1927 to 1956. Uh, this, is, this is kind of interesting. When he became convinced that God was leading him to Ecuador... His parents and friends wondered if he might instead be more effective in youth ministry in the United States. But considering the home church, quote, well-fed, he felt that international missions should take precedence. So you guys, you guys know the story of Jim Elliott probably uh, for the most part that, that he, he went to Wheaton College uh, up in Illinois and, and he, was, he, was, he actually studied Greek and he was kind of leaning on, okay, I think I want to go full-time missions. And a little while after he graduated, he's like, okay, I'm going to Ecuador uh, because I know that there's an unreached people groups uh, that back then was, was called the Aka Indians. And so he went down and, and joined with this uh, missions organization that was, in, that was in Ecuador. And eventually he and one of his friends made contact with the Aka tribe. And the Aka tribe had never had any peaceful interaction with the outside world. These were, these were savage warriors. They would kill people. And so what they did, you guys have probably seen uh, a, a new movie of it too, but they tried to contact them by flying, 
flying a plane over them. And they used a loudspeaker. Um, I don't know what they said in that loudspeaker. Because if you're speaking English, that wouldn't do any good. But uh, that, would just scare, that would just scare me. If I was an Indian, that would just scare me. Some big mechanical bird flying over my jungle yelling at me. So, um, so I don't know if that was rethinking that maybe. Um, but, but then they would drop gifts down to them uh, in the movie, um, the, the End of the Spear. You guys, you guys saw that, how they dropped a bucket down and they would give them gifts. And then, well, eventually they got to the point where um, they, they landed close to the tribe and, and had some interactions. And then there was one tribesman that came out and uh, they, they were comfortable enough with him. And then they thought, you know what would really gain us favor with this tribe is if we take this guy up in the airplane with us. So here's a guy that's basically half naked. He eats monkeys and he kills people. And think about how backwards this is. And they invite him into the plane and take him up for a ride. Talk about freaking out. Like I freak out with turbulence. This guy is off the ground for the first time in his life. And, and so they take him out and they think, oh, this is, this is such a great thing. We've made a friend. Uh, this guy will be our spokesman to the tribe. Uh, the sad thing is, is, that, is that tribe's member actually went back and lied to his tribe about the intentions of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and, and his friends. And then uh, soon after that, that tribe came out and caught them on the bank of a river and, and killed five five guys, including Jim Elliott. Um, Jim Elliott said this. He said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you determine to be the will of God. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you determine to be the will of God. He wrote that in his journals. And the interesting thing about, about all these missionaries is that for for the most part, the main reason why we know these missionaries in their life and their story is because they kept a journal. <laughs> they kept a diary, and then after they died, people looked in their diary and, and took, out, took out kind of the intimacies of their relationship with Jesus and these profound points of wisdom that they took out. And uh, Jim Elliott also, one of probably his most famous quote is, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And those, those two quotes written by a man who was willing to give his life so that a tribe who had never heard about the name of Jesus Christ would come to a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Jim Elliott, his life has spurred on probably the greatest influx of modern missions because Life magazine wrote a 10-page article um, about those five men, and now it's turned into a movie. Uh, if you say Jim Elliott at a church, I would say that most people know about that. And, and so his effect, I think, is still ongoing. So let's talk about that. There's five missionaries. What are some of the points that we can take away from that? Well, those missionaries, they, they were inspired by each other. So how do people go and affect change? How do people affect the world? How do people become history makers? They study other history makers. So if you follow that timeline, this person was inspired by that person. This person was inspired by that person. This person was inspired by that person. On and on. And so Amy Carmichael had no idea who Jim Elliott was. You know? 
But here's here's a woman being faithful in India and Jim Elliott starts to read articles and find out who she is. And maybe somebody tells a story and all of a sudden Jim Elliott's like, man, I could do that. As a matter of fact, I want to do that. And it's a ripple effect and we never know how many ripples our life is going to have. But too many of us refuse to throw the pebble in the pond. And you never know because you don't you think, oh, well, that that. That's just a small thing. These, this people group in southern India, I'm going to go over there and my friends are going to forget about me and n- nobody's going to remember me and I'm not going to come home for 55 years and so I'm going to die affecting this people group is probably, what, is probably what Amy Carmichael thought. Not ever knowing that she was planting seeds for a, a people group in Ecuador that was yet to be reached. So you never know, but... but but if you can allow the seed of your life to fall in the ground and die, then fruit can come forth of that. And you, and you, might, you might not ever see that fruit. And you should probably be okay about that. Here's a quote that you guys have heard me say. Some of you guys that have met with me, I say this, I say this all the time. The difference between who you are now and the person... The difference between who you are today and the person who you will be five years from now is determined by the books you read and the people you meet. The difference between who you are sitting at a table or a chair in Sunday school compared to who you will be five years from now is not how much PlayStation 3 you play, not how much Wii tennis you play, not by the food that you eat or the places that you go, but it's determined by the books you read and by the people you meet. Because think about this. When's the last time you sat down in an intimate conversation, a Starbucks, uh, a coffee shop, an office, and for three hours, nonstop, day after day, or an hour, nonstop, day after day, you didn't say anything, but somebody spoke to you. Think about that. It kind of happens in this context, but not really. But imagine, imagine in just one-on-one conversation, you didn't speak, but somebody spoke to you. That's what happens when you read. You're letting somebody speak into your life for an hour every day, day after day. That begins to affect change on you. Because you guys have conversations with friends, and it's passing, and it's, and it's in the midst of playing a game or eating food or going to see a movie or something like that. And your friends can have an effect on you, but I think books have that effect. And then the people that you meet will change your life dramatically because the vector of their life is going to smack into yours, and it's going to cause change. So the difference between who you are today and who you will be five years from now is determined by the books you read and the people you meet. But the sad thing is, is that I meet so many people that don't read books you don't read books. You got to read books. It'll change you. Okay. These people chose not to settle. They chose not to just go get their degree, go have a family, live the average American life. White picket fence, 2.5 kids, settle, and then ride off into the sunset. They all felt compelled to reach the lost. All of them felt like there's something inside of me that has to tell this story because this story has affected change in my heart and in my life, and therefore I have to tell somebody else about it. it, it the, movie, the movies that you go to that you absolutely love, you can't help but talk about. You can't help but talk about. And the books that, you, the books that I read, uh, 
Cliff Butler and I have awesome conversations uh, every once in a while about about the books that we read, and then we're trading books. Uh, and it's because it's because things that affect change in your life you can't help but talk about. But I think the complacency of the Christian church has has kind of caused us to come and listen to a message, go home, eat lunch, take a nap on Sunday, and then by the time you wake up, you're kind of like. Okay, what do I got to do? Well, I got this homework, or I got to go to work tomorrow, or you move on in your life. But the things, you have to tell the stories of the things that changed your life. It's not fair to keep that inside of you. It's not fair. It, imagine if you were paid to be a critic of, of a movie or of a play or a production, and, and you went and saw the play, and they pay for your ticket to get in there because you're a critic, and then you don't write about it in your newspaper article or your website. Well, then you're not going to be a critic for too long, right? Because why am I going to pay you to come see my play if you're not going to tell people about it? Even if, it, even if it's terrible, tell somebody about it because they might... The bad, news is, bad news is always good news. And, and in the marketing realm, it, just getting the word out, people are going to check it out, right? So if, we're, if we are that, we got to talk about it. We got to tell that story unless it hasn't had an effect on us. And so that's a question that I have to ask for myself because here I am last night talking to those people about the church and wondering, do I get up every day and go to church just because? Do I work in missions? Do I do what I do just because? That's a good question. Because if I was running a Starbucks, if I was running a bookstore, if I was selling shoes and I got an opportunity to hire somebody, man, I'd hire somebody that was so passionate about shoes, so passionate about coffee, so passionate about books, that they couldn't help but when people are walking through the door, say, hey, welcome to such and such, I've got to show you this. Or have you tried this? Or come over here and look at this, I want to show you this. Because we have to be, we have to be the best employees that the world's ever seen, and that starts with the deepest root that's inside of us. And so, and so, Man, if, if you're not passionate about Christ, then give it up. I just said that. If you're not passionate about Christ, then give it up. Because go find, go find something that you truly believe in. Don't, don't become a Christian just for the sake of heaven. You know? Just, just for the sake of, well, I, I don't want to go to hell. So I'm kind of... I'm kind of siding with my bet over here. So my money's, my money's on this side because it makes the most sense. Don't do it. Live hot or live cold. Live with something burning inside you so much so that you have to tell somebody about it. That you have to say, man, I don't ever, I don't ever want to get to that final day when, when Jesus is coming back and somebody that I interacted with on a daily or weekly or monthly basis looks over at me and says, you didn't tell me about this? How could you not tell me about this? You know? So, there's too many instances. We could, I could get on a rabbit trail. You guys need to learn about Calvinism and Arminianism, and then we need to have a debate. So, let's move on. Okay. Uh, I already lost an hour today. Oh, man, we're flying through this. Okay. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, this is, this is, I know that Joe has taught on this before, um, and so I, I know that you guys have a base understanding of this. Some of you guys are experts. Some of you guys uh, could teach this way better than I could teach it. But we're going to fly through this. We're going to have a quick discussion. And then we're going to have somebody stand up for both sides and 
give their statement, give their statement, have a rebuttal, and have a rebuttal. And so it'll be a, a mini-debate. So, okay. Uh, traditionally, there's five points, points of Calvinism. Uh, Calvinism is just kind of a reformed theology. Um, there's, there's an easy way to remember this. It's the acronym TULIP. I know I've sat in Sunday school and, and uh, learned this from Joe, so I know you guys know this, but uh, quick review. The T on the first point is total depravity. The point, the point being this. People are not by nature inclined to love God with their whole heart, mind, or strength, but rather are all inclined to serve their own interests over those of their neighbor and to reject the rule of God. So Calvinists believe that there's total depravity, that we as men are, are lost without God, and we actually have an inclination to, to choose ourselves rather than God. Point two, unconditional election. This talks about, this talks about predestination. Um, let me turn over uh, to Romans real quick, if I can. Sorry. Okay, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Okay, predestination, un- unconditional election or predestination um, says this, that basically, basically God has chosen. Um, so 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, just kind of giving you guys some, some verses for um, how, they got, how they got to these points scripturally. Um, okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guarantee in our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory." Okay, um, some of the discussion is about predestination. Is, is that an internal value or an external statement? Uh, meaning, meaning why, should we, why should we go on missions if everybody's predestined already? Um, so what I want you guys in a minute to talk amongst your tables is, is why should we go on missions if in fact we are predestined? Do we believe in predestination? Is it an internal value that meaning once you're saved then you're predestined to be conformed into his likeness? Or is it an external statement saying, we are the chosen, that guy who's driving to that intersection right now, not so much. And there's nothing he can do about it, just like there's nothing I can do about it, that God chose before the creation of the world to predestine me. So we're going to have a discussion about that. Point three, limited atonement. Calvinists would argue uh, that it would be unjust for God to pay the penalty for some people's sins and then still condemn them for those sins, all those whose sins were atoned for must necessarily be saved. So did, did Christ die for the whole world? Mm, maybe not, because 
because if he died for the whole world, but these people rejected his salvation and then he condemned them, then his atonement is, you can't, you can't cover it and condemn. Does that make sense? So, so they, say, they say that it was limited atonement, that, that, God, that Jesus, God sent his son Jesus to die for the world, but, but he already knew who he was dying for, and so it was, his atonement was limited. Uh, man, we could spend weeks on this. Um, irresistible grace. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this, not from works, so that no, no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, irresistible grace basically says that God's grace overcomes our resistance. That we can resist up to a certain point, but his grace is like, is like a tidal wave that comes over us and we can't even stand in that rush of grace. So that's irresistible grace. And point five is perseverance of the saints. This has to do with eternal, secu- eternal security. This means uh, once you're saved, you're always saved. I prayed when I was little, therefore uh, I can pretty much do whatever I want. Um, because I know that I know that once I've been saved, I'll, I'll always be saved. Does that make sense? Okay, Arminianism compared to that was was basically started. This guy Jacobus uh, Arminian Arminius uh, he actually studied in a Calvinist school and uh, became an excellent an excellent student. Uh, but then after a while, and then he became, he, he became a pastor in Amsterdam and then started having these issues with, uh, with the five points of Calvinism. Um, he argued that God's exhaustive foreknowledge did not require a doctrine of determinism, meaning just because God knows everything already doesn't mean that he determined everything already. Does that make sense? So um, there are such things as, as a four-point Calvinist. So what I want you guys to do in your table is I want you to take these five points, and maybe they'll keep them up on the screen um, if they were up there already, and, and say, talk about, okay, of these, of these five, which ones do I understand? Uh, and then how many of these do I believe in? And then am I a five-point Calvinist? Am I a four-point Calvinist? Uh, I'll give you a hint. John Wesley, he was a three-point Calvinist. Uh, John, John Wesley disagreed um, with the perseverance of the saints. He didn't believe in eternal security. And then he also disagreed with unconditional election, uh, meaning predestination. So um, what I want you guys to do is discuss those five points, figure out where you stand, and then what we're going to do, we're drawing a line right here down the side. Uh, and then all of you guys, after you discuss amongst your table, you're going to elect one representative to come up and grab this microphone, and you're going to have a short uh, debate, and you guys are going to be the Arminianists. You guys are going to be the Calvinists, and so you're going to elect somebody from this side um, to argue Calvinism. So, okay, discuss amongst yourselves. Mark, let go.
saving grace and how you gave your life in exchange for mine. Sometimes I wonder why you even love me and why you ever chose to call me child. That I remember it's by your sacrifice I can say that I am yours and It doesn't take much for me to shed a tear And you have done so many things to make me cry Whenever I think all that I've done wrong And everything that you have done Okay, the booth, they were arguing about Calvinism and Arminianism, really getting into it. Okay, before we finish this discussion, stay amongst your tables. Now I want you guys to answer this question. I would say simply stated, there's three ways to view evangelism. Number one, unnecessary. Number two, it's our privilege. And number three, it's our duty. So once you guys, I'm not going to give away kind of where I stand and, and how I would label those. But is evangelism unnecessary? Is it our privilege? Or is it our duty? Okay, talk amongst themselves. Yourselves. Okay, you guys ready? Okay. Okay, right now I need I need a representative from the Arminian side to run up here and a representative from the Calvinist side to run up here. So if you have like an all-star from your table or you know somebody's like brilliant in all this. All right. All right, Aaron Higgins, everyone, the Arminianist. Okay, we need we need a representative from Calvinism. All right, Joel, that's you. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go over if you guys will allow me. I'm not gonna end in two minutes at at uh, nine at ten forty-five. I'm gonna end at ten fifty-two if you'll let me. So, 
Um, okay, so what they get to do is Aaron Higgins is going gonna, is gonna to argue Arminianism and tell us what you determined as far as it's unnecessary, missions is unnecessary, it's our privilege, or it's our duty. Okay, Mark, it's a go. I'm going to cut you off, too. Just so okay, you know. okay, good to know. Well, boy, okay, i got to start this off. Uh, Calvinism. Calvinism is flawed with the thought that uh, everything is determined. Uh, that's a lot of what hinges upon it. I'm a big proponent of choice. God chose us. It repeats that several times in the Bible. We can choose God. We can step away from the faith. I've seen that countless times. But it's also then our duty as choice to bring that choice to other people. What's the point of missions work if they're going to be saved or not saved? What's the point of life if you don't know what your eternity is going to be? You have made that choice for salvation and for just because God knows what's going to happen doesn't necessarily mean that he chose it to happen. Okay, good. Okay, Calvinism. Okay, uh, as far as Calvinism goes, first off, let's say that to understand fully salvation and to have a, a completely and um, full understanding of it in the sense that we understand every aspect that God created of it, I think is a bit naive. We're not going to be able to understand the things of God in a huge way. That said, Scripture is very, very clear in multiple locations that God chose us before the foundations of the earth. I don't know about you, but I wasn't there to choose God at that point. He chose me based on his foreknowledge of me. He chose, he chose me, and I didn't have anything to do with that necessarily. In fact, it even says in Romans that he chose us. In fact, we didn't even choose him because if we chose him, then we'd be able to take credit for some of our salvation in the sense that I was wise enough, I knew enough, I was righteous enough to choose God. And as far as what... Um, with uh, the missions thing, mm -hmm. I would say that it is absolutely necessary because we were commanded to do it by our Savior, and it is our privilege. And uh, what was the third one? Well, is it unnecessary, is it our privilege, or is it our duty? It is both our privilege and our duty because we were commanded to do it. That's and cheating. It's... That's cheating. All right. All right. Honoring. <laughs> God. Good job. Okay. Okay. You have, you have a 30-second rebuttal. Oh, boy. Uh, 30 seconds. Okay, just because God chose us before we were born does not necessarily mean we have to choose him. Hmm. It is by grace we are saved, but we have to take part of that grace in order for the contract to be fulfilled. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. Hmm. Good. Okay, rebuttal. Yeah, I agree with that. However, I would also say that, um, and this falls under Calvinism, that if we are truly saved and we have tasted of the good things of God, then we will know, and, and we, we won't be able to choose against him. It's, it's irresistible. And, uh, again, once your eyes are open to the truth and you really understand the choice between heaven and hell, is there really a choice? Hmm. Okay, good. Thank you guys so much. Okay, uh, I think the Arminian side won uh, because I think the Calvinists were predestined to lose, actually. So. <laughs>
Okay. Uh, I would say this. I would say that where I fall personally, and this is this is nothing that you guys have to line up with. I would say that I'm probably a two-point Calvinist. Uh, I I believe in total depravity, and I believe in irresistible grace. The other three, uh, predestination. I have I have uh, an argument against. I grew up in a reformed school, and I saw that they did not go on missions. Uh, their churches in that school didn't didn't view missions as as necessary um, necessarily. So it was uh, so where and then I think where I fall with is it unnecessary? Is missions unnecessary? Our privilege or our duty? I think that if you think missions is unnecessary, you fall into the hyper Calvinist side. That you just think, well, they're going they're going to get saved. I can't do anything about my own salvation. Therefore, I can't do anything about somebody else's salvation. Therefore, missions is unnecessary because God already foreknew. If you say it's our privilege, I would say that you're probably a modern Calvinist. Uh, there's a lot of churches exploding in growth that are Reformed churches. Um, but I would, I would fall, as a missions pastor in an evangelical church, I would fall into the category of it's our duty to do this. And I would say that's probably the evangelical Arminianism uh, standpoint. So we have uh, still kind of a lot to go through, and I'll save, I'll save some of that. So that, that handout that's on your table, uh, we'll get to that next week. Um, but it's, it's talking about who can actually go on missions, what opportunities we have. So you guys can take that home, look into the websites, and we'll touch that. I just want to finish with one quote. That quote is from Wilfred Grenfell. He said, I have always believed that the good Samaritan went across the road to the, one, to the wounded man just because he wanted to. And I think sometimes we wonder, are, are we called? Did we hear an audible voice to do missions? Uh, should I go on this short-term trip? Should I give my life to a specific people group? And I think that sums it up that, that the good Samaritan just helped the guy because he wanted to. Because he saw a need and he could fill it. So, Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we praise you for the, for the fun that we could have, that we realize how limitless the Bible is, God, that it is truly a living, breathing word from you. And so we recommit our lives to you and say, God, use us in the deepest sense. Use us up, God. Let us be marked by you and let us leave a mark of you on this world. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name.